You're listening to the Pop Tart Podcast. Girl down. You already know. Like when I was in a band, I didn't want to go home with a groupie, but I wanted to have the option. I say, hey, baby, you come play this arena often? And shit gets weird, and it gets weirder, and then it gets weirder. Really hot, cute guy, and he keeps making eye contact. And I do the thing, and I go, get that guy and bring him backstage. And shit gets weird, and it gets weirder, and then it gets weirder. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Pop-Tart. Me, 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 me. I'm Emily Rems. I'm Callie Watts. We're both editors of Bust Magazine, usually in Brooklyn, New York, but now from home. Today's guest is true rock and roll royalty. As bassist for iconic band The Go-Go's, Kathy Valentine and her girl gang became the first multi-platinum selling all-female band to play their own instruments, write their own songs, and have a number one album. Their 1981 debut, Beauty and the Beat, spent six weeks at the top of the Billboard charts and featured the hit songs We Got the Beat and Our Lips Are Sealed, and Kathy wrote the band's subsequent hits, Vacation and Head Over Heels. This past April, she debuted All I Ever Wanted, a rock and roll memoir, as well as a super cool original soundtrack based on the book. Her memoir is bursting with raucous girl-powered sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but is also heroically honest, with chapters detailing childhood trauma, sexual assault, and struggles with addiction. Her work is so important to me, and I'm so excited to talk with her. Welcome, Kathy! Yay! Hi! Hi! Um, I'm going to take you on a brief journey into my past for a moment. So I can express to you one of the reasons, the many reasons why your work is important to me. Uh, Specifically, your album Beauty and the Beat was so formative for me. I was six when it first came out. And the Go-Go's was the very first all-girl band I had ever seen. As soon as I knew that there was such a thing as an all-girl band, I wanted to be in one. And eventually I was. Uh, I took the album out of my local library over and over and over again. And I danced around my dining room like crazy because my parents had set up their record player in a low cabinet in the dining room so my six-year-old self could actually play my own records without help. So I'd dance all around the dining room, playing Beauty and the Beat, and then returning it to the library and then taking it back out of the library. I loved it so much, but at the same time, my gym teacher was also obsessed with Beauty and the Beat, and she would make (laughs) us run around the gym at the beginning of every class till we got the beat, and I was always a very plump dumpling since I was born, so I would, and I would actually throw up from running, and so to this day, when we hear, whenever I hear we got the beat, I get very happy and also very nauseous. (laughs) So that's the Pavlovian response that your work has upon my life. (laughs) And um, now, if you wouldn't mind, could you please give our listeners a quick and dirty intro into how you became a go-go? Yes, absolutely. I, uh, I'd been a musician in my mind. I was a a seasoned pro I'd been in gosh, at least four or five bands. And I had been playing for five years and I'd moved to LA to make it in the music business. And I had been in a band, I'd done some cool things, I'd played in London, I mean, I really felt like I was on my way, but I ended up like kind of out of a band, what am I going to do? Two months went by, I'm 21 years old, and I'm kind of like, oh, I don't know what's happening here, I need need to pull something together, and I met Charlotte from the Go-Go's at the Whiskey. Um, It turns out that they had, in five days, five nights later, they had eight sold out shows and their bass player was sick. And so it was really, I mean, my name had come up, but there, I wasn't the only female musician in town. And I don't even know why my name came up because I wasn't even a bass player at all, but she asked if I played bass. I'm like, well, yeah. And, um, I, I joined, I mean, I, I, I signed on to do those shows kind of as a, 
okay, well, yeah, why not? They're a popular band. This will be fun. I had no idea how much I would fall in love, basically. Um, as soon as I started learning the songs, as soon as I started rehearsing, uh, I wanted, I just wanted to be permanent. And it happened very quickly after that. I think it was just, um, it was kind of, we were meant to be together. Ah, it's totally meant to be. As my grandmother would say, it's basher. Yes. It's meant to be. Um, in your memoir, you describe as having what you refer to as a free range childhood. Basically, you were totally unsupervised. I also had one of those. Um, yours involved sex and drugs much more than mine did. Mine mostly involved lots of cheese popcorn for dinner. As a result, you had your first abortion at 12. And you were already used to alcohol and drugs before you joined the Go-Go's at 21. In some way, do you think that growing up too fast helped prepare you to be a rock star or is it just straight up child abuse with no silver lining? No, not at all. I, I, I don't I don't see it as child abuse. My mom, she, knowing her basic nature, I know that she really um, was going completely against her nature to to do anything to, to parent at all. I mean, even the little I got was so against her nature, which is very much about her and herself. Um, as a result, I had been taking care of myself from a really young age. And my my biggest uh, driving, motivating force was like, how am I going to take care of myself? No one else is going to do it. This is my job. This is my job. And as soon as I latched onto music, that became it. Okay, this is how I'm going to do it. And I was very, very determined. My mom, as reckless and irresponsible as she was to me, to a kid, it came, it filtered down to me as fearlessness. She just seemed fearless. She didn't seem like, uh, you know, if, if something needed to be done around the house, she did it. She didn't call up some guy and ask him to come do it. She just, and she was working full time, going to school full time. You know, I've seen people say some pretty, you know, I, I could, I was honest about my mom, but I really didn't want to demonize her or make her the villain of my story because I really think my resiliency and strength came from that. And I think that helped me uh, go out to LA with the determination that I had. I mean, it didn't even enter my mind that I was not going to succeed. Not, it didn't even enter my mind. Yeah. I mean, you really like hustled and made it happen. Like before you were even legally old enough to drink, like you were already doing the, the whole thing. So there has to have been some sort of life lessons that you learned to be able to do that. And there was, you know, and I'm not going to say there wasn't bad sides of it too, but, you know, and I have no idea why some people take one situation and, and, and it just becomes a very victimized, terrible thing. And someone else becomes, you know, becomes driving ambition. I don't know about all that, but for me, um, the bad side was that I trained myself to always project that I was always okay. Nothing nothing could penetrate that because that meant chaos in my life mm -hmm. as a child. If I wasn't okay, then my mom uh, wouldn't know what to do with that. It, it all worked on me being okay. That's how everything stayed together. And that became my mode of operating. And so anything like sadness or, um, you know, weakness, to me, weakness, I, I just equated weakness with just, you know, an abhorrent, terrible thing. Uh, you had to be strong to survive. You had to be. And uh, it took me a really long time to open up, to be vulnerable, to to recognize the parts of myself that were sad, that felt abandoned, that felt betrayed. Uh, and to it took a really long time. And writing this book made it happen on, on an even deeper level. Um, you know, I found it very poignant in the book, the way you describe how in many ways the band became the family you never had. And I, I know I also felt that way when I was briefly in a girl band. And as a result, I was totally devastated my, when my band broke up. How did you manage those feelings? Is there any way to get over the loss of a girl band? I Well, I managed them the only way I knew how, which was, you know, partying and drinking and, you know, keep creating other families around me with friends. Mm -hmm. um, but it... 
it represented not only this sisterhood that I long to feel a part of, the family that I long to feel a part of, but it represented how I could take care of myself. This was how, you know, I'd been told we were going to go to the poor house the whole time I was growing up. So while I wasn't obsessed with making money, I was very focused on, I got to take care of myself. I got to figure out how that's good. So the band represented how I could live in the world, how I could be, uh, an adult on the outside anyway. Um, so it, it was devastating. It was, it was probably, Oh, it's just, I mean, I really wanted to get that onto the page because you did. Yeah. You I, did. I think that's something that so many people can relate to. And I really felt like if in the book, if, if I could really express what it felt like, not, not everyone has had the experience of being in a band or, or losing it and this and that, but everyone has lost something that means something yeah. to them. Everybody has felt their pride or their ego kind of get in the way of something or felt the joy of achieving. I mean, the feelings are things that are human that we all um, have experienced at, at some point in our, in our journey. So that's what that's what I was really hoping that anyone that you didn't have to be a Go-Go's fan. That's what I really want people to know. It's like, you don't really have to be a Go-Go's fan to enjoy and, and relate to the book. Well, yeah, there's definitely a lot of universal shit in there to connect with. Definitely. Um, Something else that caught my attention was that according to your inspirations, Susie Quattro and the Runaways, and also in your experience, you said that men who were artists, who were actually musicians, were always helpful and accepting around you being in a girl band, in an all-girl band. But it was the non-artists who were being total sexist fuckwads. It was executives and radio DJs and club owners who were the real sexist gatekeepers standing in the way of women in rock. You wrote that your pre-Go-Go's band could have opened for the Sex Pistols when they first came to Texas, but the owner said to get the gig, your bandmate had to sleep with him. Is this still true as far as you know? Like, how far have women in rock come, and is this as true today as it was then? Because I thought that it was all the dudes in rock, but that's not been your experience. Well, the the pattern didn't really emerge to me until I wrote the book. And I just, as I was writing it, I started seeing this pattern emerge that how all the musicians that I had looked up to, for one thing, in Austin, there weren't any women in bands. There were some women singers, but all the musicians I knew were men. But when I went to clubs, the bands were guys, you know, the and all the bands I looked up to were guys. So getting that validation, uh, getting, you know, not being... Uh, condescended to. I mean, it really meant everything to me. And I didn't really recognize it till I wrote the book. And I saw this pattern and I, and I wanted to acknowledge it because I think, you know, we hear all the time about the, the, the sexism and the bad things that happen, but I wanted, I did want to acknowledge that when I saw it. Um, and I think that things have changed, but I think, you know, everyone's experience is different, you know, just because, we are, we're uh, women. Um, we're not going to have the same experience. You know, we're not going to have the same stories just because we all are the same gender. And, you know, I, I remember being really dismayed, you know, uh, you know, hearing about Kesha and, you know, yeah. the, the, the producer, these, these larger than life producers that are giving careers to these stars and, that even, I remember being astounded that someone that's a star had to still be in that position. Obviously, things go on. Um, but, you know, I think there's a lot of things that have changed for the good. I, I don't I think women aren't as categorized as much as they used to be. I think women can can they can they can they can be as sexualized as they want of their own choosing you know, mm-hmm. uh, ra- rather than a man saying, go out there and be sexy. You know, I, I, I see that a lot. I see women being across the, the spectrum of how they present themselves in terms of image and clothing and attire and attitude and message and what they want to put out to the world, basically. So I think that's changed a lot. When we were, when we were successful 
if you didn't dress really sexy, then you must be the girl next door. If you weren't the whore, you had to be the virgin. You know, if yeah. you weren't that, uh, there were very small, limited boxes. And, um, you know, or the tomboy, you know, Chrissy Hine got to be the tomboy. But, mm-hmm. but we weren't really, we, we wore skirts and stuff. So we weren't the tomboy, you know, mm-hmm. but we weren't wearing corsets. So we weren't the, it was just like very limited. And, and uh, that's one thing that I, I think has changed. I don't, I don't think there's, I think there's still those boxes, but maybe there's a lot more of them. I don't know. So, and I love seeing how many musicians are, you know, you go see anyone from pink to Beyonce to, you know, any number of acts, Lenny Kravitz, they almost all of them have kick-ass women musicians in their bands. I love that. Right. That, that wasn't the case. I love that too. That was not the case. You wrote that for a long time, you were only interested in guys based on what they could teach you on the guitar. And you also say in the book that there weren't male groupies following the go-go's around. I don't understand how that's possible. (laughs) I've heard from other women um, who are in touring bands that crew members or guys in other bands were much more likely hookups than fans. Why don't girl bands get the groupies they so richly deserve? Like what's happening here? Well, I think it's, you know, not to not to categorize or, or stereotype, but I do think there are uh, physiological uh, primordial instincts that we have. And I think, you know, of course, that doesn't apply to everybody. I want to just put that disclaimer out there. But I do think women, the, the female as a speed as a as a is tends to want to create a family or create a, a, a thing around them and nurture. And I think the guys want to just go spread their seeds all around. It's just like, it's like, it's just caveman stuff. And I think that women in bands, what, what our experience was, was that we did tend to favor people in the crew or our band for a little, for flings and stuff, because it was like a little mini relationship. I want a relationship. Even if it's mm. a short one, yeah, you know, a... yeah, you know, if I just want to get off, I don't need anyone to do that. You know, <laughs> yeah. if that's, if I, it's like, I don't need to have to be annoyed with somebody else. So <laughs> what I like is the connection <laughs> and, and being with, you know, having a little mini fling or a mini relationship. Um, so the interesting thing was, and I think also that men didn't know how to be in that position where they. Like, how do they hit on someone who's just been on stage playing to thousands of people? I mean, that's just right. wasn't in most guys' experience, yeah. you know. Uh, it's like, how, how do I do that? What, what do I go up and say, hey, baby, you come play this arena often, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so That's true. Yeah. Like, when I was in a band, I didn't want to go home with a groupie, but I wanted to have the option. <laughs> I wanted to know that there were groupies lined up in case I were ever to want that. Well, I have this amazing story and it ha- my time frame time frame of my book. I've had very little mostly I've had just wonderful feedback, but I've had a little tiny bit of grumblings like why would you stop in 1990? Because you know, it's a memoir, it's a slice of life yeah. and the journey, you know, I I was much more interested in crafting a really good story that put me on the map as a writer than I was in being the Go-Go's historian. So sorry, Go-Go's fans that are mad that I didn't go past 1990, but I had a perfect story arc in, in my time frame. But in the 90s, there was a time, I'm completely sober, and I do this, I look out in the audience and there's this really hot, cute guy. And he keeps making eye contact. And I do the thing. I do the guy thing. And I go, get that guy and bring him backstage. This guy. Yeah, go get him. So it's, it's such a good story. So he comes backstage. We talk again. I'm not, I'm not, I don't do anything, but uh, I invite him the next day to come back and ride with us to the next city. And I'm thinking maybe something will happen. But as it turns out, I'm sober. I don't want to do that. I don't want to just. And so I end up like paying for a stupid hotel room, (laughs) paying for a bus ride to send him back home. I mean, everyone made fun of me for the whole rest of the tour, just how lame it was that I I couldn't even like hook up on the road with with a stranger. But maybe, you know, it's just. 
That's how it ends. So didn't, didn't you almost have it all? <laughs> I almost did. So anyway, sorry about that story. It probably has nothing to do with anything. But... I like it. No, it absolutely does. And I'm <laughs> so glad that you told it because I, you know, I want to know how theoretically one would get the job done. <laughs> all right. So you also wrote that the best way to meet up with potential bandmates is to go to lots and lots of shows and meet and mingle with lots of musicians. I wonder what you think that will look like now that gathering in large groups is still considered dangerous for the foreseeable future. Do you have advice for girls who want to rock in the age of coronavirus? Well, you know, when I was a musician, there was no girls rock camp. You didn't go to the toy store and see Barbie with her guitar or brats with their instruments. There was, you know, and I had never heard of, uh, any Fanny or any of the bands of the 60s. So I thought I was the only one in the world. So if I could figure out how to find my way and be in a band, you know, without any of that, I mean, you got the internet, come on. It's like, there is a way. The hardest thing that I think young musicians have is finding like a way to come together and like have a rehearsal place mm-hmm. and, and get people that are as serious as them. That's that's because I have tried to support young um women music want young female musicians and it is a problem finding someone else finding other people that are serious that'll do it finding a place to rehearse making the time after school and they might not be in your school you might be having to find somebody somewhere else so i think um i think it'd be a really cool thing to set up an actual social uh network for teenage musicians yeah for them to connect with each other and find each other and so they don't have to like let's pretend we're starting a band and waste six months only to find out somebody really isn't, doesn't have the same drive as you. Yeah. Yeah. I I agree. I think that'd be really cool. In New York city, just getting like four grown ass women in a room to play instruments once a week. Like that was a miracle. (laughs) You can't even do that. I mean, all my bands, we didn't have a space. We just were lucky enough to have living room space. And that's that's what you do. You do what you have to. And it's, but it can be hard finding those other people. Even now, you know, it can be hard. I mean, my daughter sometimes is interested in having a band and she's like, well, who am I going to play with? You know, nobody else wants to do this. Yeah. (sighs) Well, tell me more about the soundtrack that comes with the book. I've never heard a book where there's like a whole soundtrack of like rock songs that I I consumed the book on the the audiobook way. I highly recommend it. I loved hearing your voice in my ear and I loved hearing the songs that were directly relevant to the chapter that I was just about to listen to. There was all these little Easter eggs and gems and like little bits of dialogue pulled from the chapter that was in the songs. How did that come about and how did you make it? It's so cool. Um well when I was I I started thinking at some point as I was getting, you know, maybe two thirds through the book, I started thinking, number one, I was really missing music. I was really missing uh, writing songs and stuff. But also I was started thinking like, who is going to care about my book? You know, Belinda's the lead singer. She already had a book out. I'm the bass player. Nobody cares about the bass player. Who's going to care about my book? What can I do to make my book stand out? So originally it was like, maybe I thought maybe this would be, something new and different that would make people interested. Um, as it turns out, it just ended up being probably one of the most creative and fun musical experiences of my whole career. And that's another message I, I like to, I'm proud of that. I like saying that, um, um, that you can, you know, at 61 years old, you can still be making and be making the music that is new and different and inspiring and challenging. And, I really like because I had everything available to me. I mean, I have been in bands for 45 years. So that's 45 years of having some, you know, I'm not Prince. I'm in a band where everything filters through everybody. So I'm not running the show. If I bring a song in, everybody has to like it. If I have an idea for something, everybody has to like it. You know, I, and so 45 years of that, you can imagine when all of a sudden I can do any kind of music. Oh, next to Merle, this is about my dad. My dad loved Merle Haggard. I'm going to make this a country song or, or a kind of a country sounding or 
Clubland. This took place in 1973. This was about me hanging out at the club. So I'm going to make this sound like 70s music, like Curtis Mayfield or something. And every, so I was capturing not only the the tone and the, the text of a chapter, but the mood and the feel. Like I, I'm going to do a song about getting raped. You know, that one was like amazing to me because I wrote about that chapter about getting raped at 14 and I processed it like level down to here. But writing that song, when I started singing the chorus, if I can't, you know, do it, just do it. If I can't stop you, I can let you. It was just, I started sobbing. I just, as soon as I sang that, I started crying and I cried for three days. Literally. Oh I mean, my God. I just, I, it was just like it opened this morning. It was like all of a sudden I was like, here's this 14 year old girl, completely overpowered, trying to just have one little ounce of power. And if the power was like, oh, just do it. That was, that was all I had. Cause it was, he was going to do what he wanted anyway, but I got to give him permission. Wow. And it just feeling so it just really, uh, it still does. I mean, when I talk about it, when I sing it, it still makes me feel so sad. Like that all those, all that time went by where I didn't even realize that I'd been raped. Yeah. I just felt really sad and that I wasn't protected and that I'm a 14 year old going, please don't, please stop, please don't. And he kept doing things and kept doing things. And I finally just thought, I know how to make him stop. I just say, do it, go ahead, just do it then. Wow. And that song, it makes people cry. And yeah. it was very cathartic. And so doing the soundtrack, whether it ever gets any attention or not, it's, it's not really relevant to, to me, the result of it. The act of doing it was just so, so uh, ex exhilarating and amazing. And I worked with a awesome uh, co-producer in New York that I, I did everything myself, but I would send all the files to Michael Rouse in New York and he made it all sound really fresh and modern, you know, really just super, super uh, fresh. And I was very influenced by hip hop because I wasn't always singing. There was times where yeah. I would take, and I wouldn't read. It's not like I would, oh, let me lay down a beat and read out of the book. I would put music scapes and then I would take the text out of the book and rework it and reword it. So it kind of had a flow. So, yeah, you know, and, and, and I had the freedom to do that. You know, if, if any band, they'd be like, oh, no, we're not hip hop. We're not this. We're not that. So it was super uh, freeing. And just to be a musician for so long and then to do something so new and different, uh, it inspired me and I hope it inspires other people. Yeah, it really showed, you know, how audiobooks are really coming into their own as their own sort of new medium alongside podcasting. Like now that so many people are consuming media with their headphones, like it, an audiobook doesn't have to be just someone reading their book. Yeah, like, who was that other? You're really proving that people can come alive. I, I felt, oh, go who ahead. Who was that other oh. guest we had recently that also did the audiobook with, oh, um, the RZA. The girl from the woman yeah, the from Wu Tang Clan. Yes, awesome. Sophia Chang had did a lot of extra bells and whistles with her audiobook new, as well. Well, yeah. I hadn't heard of a lot of it, but I thought if I couldn't get an audiobook company to do it, I was fully prepared to do it on my own because I wanted it to be that way. And and I even thought about doing it as a podcast, doing the audiobook as a podcast rather than an audiobook. But then I realized I'd be leaving like most of the market on the table because if you're not, yeah. <laughs> if, if you don't have that access. So I was like, eh, but then, um, thank God I, I just by a fluke, um, got this deal with Hachette and they were awesome to work with. I had a great producer. It really added a lot. I'm so glad that you did it. Me too. Um, you know, I was surprised at the part of the book where you were describing that your iconic first Rolling Stone cover, which I know I had for a long time in my bedroom. <laughs> um, I, I was so surprised when you were describing that Annie Leibovitz shot it and you had no idea that you would be posing in your underwear until you were there at the shoot and all of a sudden 
they sprang on you guys that they wanted you to pose in your underwear and you didn't want to do it and they pressured you into doing it, which is not at all how I think of Annie yeah. Leibovitz. I wonder, I wonder if Annie would still pull a stunt like that today. I know being a magazine editor that we would never in a million years have someone come to a photo shoot for our magazine and then tell them, oh, this one's going to be in their underpants. I know that Bust Magazine oh, isn't yeah, Rolling right. Stone, but but still, like, I thought that was very surprising, and I, I gave it side-eye. Can you tell me more about how that went down? Yeah, and um, and I, I think I wrote about it really fair to Annie because I, I think she had a, I think she had a creative idea and I, I think it's possible that she was playing and it wasn't our underwear. I want to make clear that we didn't just take it our was clothes. underwear. It, it was brought, it, somebody went out and bought piles of, of Hanes underwear and brought it back. We're all in our makeup and clothes ready to shoot. Uh, I, I thought it was a really uh, good the way I, I told the story, but what I, what I think is that, she had some, like, we had this image of the the wholesome girl next door. So maybe that was part of it. Or maybe at the time, um, the, I think it's Albert, oh, what's his name? The the book about Elvis Presley had come out and everybody was talking about how Elvis liked the, the girls in the white underwear. So, right. so there, I didn't know if there was just some kind of like, um, commentary she didn't share it with, with us she didn't say this is why I want this so it was all her idea and I think she did have a vision but what rubbed salt in the injury <laughs> was uh was the the headline the go-go's put out yeah. you know that's what and I was just like I couldn't figure out like was it just like I felt like it was a reverse deballing it's like look they're not even sexy when they're in their underwear like or they're in their under I don't know it just seemed, something seemed very weird and off yet at the same time you know I've been uh, I've been looking up I mean Annie Leibovitz is a icon Rolling Stone is right. iconic this is a huge thing you know to to be on the cover of Rolling Stone so um, part of the time you're doing you're you're being a good girl you're doing what mm-hmm. you're doing as you're told you know because you kind of put your trust into uh, an iconic institution, you know, and uh, yeah. ultimately, you know, it was turned out to be one of their biggest covers. And I, the way we felt was like, hey, at least it's not like we're like in our lacy, you know, sexy underwear. But at the same time, I don't know, there was some kind of visual or, or creative vision she had. I'm not sure what it, it was. would have been nice if yeah. she asked. I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I'm still friends with the Steve Pond who did that story, and uh, we we still talk about it, you know, because he had no say in the in the byline or the what do they call the, the lead. You know, there's two parts of the book that made me really sad. The first one, I felt so sad listening to the part where you wrote about you needed another abortion when you were 23. You were on tour with the police. Nobody in the band wanted to go with you. And then the night after you had the procedure, you were playing Madison Square Garden. You seemed like such a tight girl gang to me, worshiping you from home. But that part really revealed that the friendship wasn't as deep at that time as maybe it should have been. What was going on with you guys that that you had? I mean, you didn't end up having to go alone. Your manager went. But, like, I feel like your band... At least someone should have been there. Well, I think it was a number of things. Like the backdrop prior to that was we were really exhausted. We had been touring nonstop. And then in Europe, we're opening for the police. And we were used to our touring is playing all these cool clubs all through America. We're playing clubs. We're, and we're moving up from the, the small club to the next level club. And these are the same clubs that... Uh, you know, Blondie had played in television and the Ramones. And we're like following in the footsteps of all our favorite bands and they're all sold out. So we're a huge success in our mind. We're not even thinking number one or anything. We're just know that we can go, we can pull into Detroit or Atlanta or Minneapolis and sell out a club. So we're feeling on top of the world. And then we get to, to um, Europe and we're playing these big places and they don't care. They don't, they don't like us. 
they, and they're not booing us or anything, but you know, the police are really good musicians and the audiences just aren't quite getting us. We don't have any airplay. And at the same time, the record company is working you to death because they're, they know, oh, we've got this hot American band and they're only going to be here three weeks. Mm -hmm. And so they're just cramming everything in. So for the first time, all that fun we'd been having, you know, making the album and out on the, all that, the newness of it and the excitement, it was wearing a little thin. So everyone's tired. Everyone's exhausted, a little beaten down because, you know, we're not, it's not so, it's not that fun being the opening band. Let's just, you know, it's really not that fun. You're, you're opening for someone else. And um, so there was all that. And yet at the same time, the bigger thing is that we were really immature. You know, we, we knew how to have fun together. We knew how, what it was like to have a good time, but we were immature. We didn't have fully developed senses of empathy and compassion. And I wasn't the only one that had intense things going on in those years. You know, there, there, everyone had things happening that you just kind of like, Oh, you just, Oh, everything's fine. You know, everything's fine. It's like, I just, I didn't have the, the emotional uh, bandwidth to to take on someone else's suffering. I knew how to party with them, but I didn't know how to 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 be deep, you know. And um, so yeah, it was it. I didn't. It was the day off too, you know. Back then, a day off was like it was gold. So I wrote in the book. I didn't really blame anyone for not wanting to get up at six in the morning to go with me, you know. But um, but at the same time, it, it, it did. I mean, I, it did affect me. And I just, it brought back that feeling of like when I was a kid, like, okay, it's my job. This is my job to take care of me. It just reinforced what I'd always felt and what I'd let go of a little bit when I was mm-hmm. in a band. I was like, okay, we're a family. We're going to take care of each other. But yeah, but uh, you were gracious about not really holding it against them. But I listening in. I felt I really felt for you, and I wished that one of them had gone with you. Just uh, it it changed my image of what it must have been like to be in the Go Go's a little bit, and maybe at a different point in the band, in the band's history, someone would have gone. But I understand what you're saying about everyone being burnt out. And there was other thing. I mean, there was a, a time on the road around the same time where you know Gina got very sick and had to go into the hospital, and. We just got on the bus and left her there. You know, she must have been terrified, you know, to be left alone. Uh, you know, just I mean, it wasn't there were other things happening to other people. And it's funny, after I wrote my book, you know, and the other the other women read it, you know, and we would talk about some things. And I'm like, you know, that wasn't, you know, I was able to acknowledge we still at after 40 years, we still are healing and forgiving and kind of continually evolving as as uh friends oh i'm so glad i'm so glad that you guys were able to connect about it all these years later that's that sounds good to me i'm wondering kathy valentine are you a feminist yes yes (laughs) excellent and how has being uh being a rock star impacted your feminism i feel it's such a good question I feel like I have been very blessed. I feel like a privileged feminist. I feel like being being in a band gave allowed me to just be a feminist by virtue of the fact that I was already out of the I was off the grid already. I didn't have to fight a lot of traditionalism as far as roles. I had that with my mom too. I just I never felt like I had to be I felt like the rules didn't apply, you know, the, the rules that, that are supposed to be for women. My mom, I really felt like was a feminist and, um, uh, by action, you know, just by, by doing everything herself. And I just feel like I had, I had the privilege of being a feminist. It, it wasn't like I was in a situation where I had to fight really hard and that made me one. So I feel like, you know, maybe in terms, I don't know if I'm expressing it very articulately, but I just feel like I got to be one rather than had to fight for anything, you know? And, and it's just, it's hard to explain, but 
but um, I get very, uh, I think it's, I think feminism, there's so many ways to define anything. And I think it's a gut, a, a visceral reaction. Like, how do you feel when you see a woman being treated, you know, in, in an unequal way, when she doesn't have the rights, when she's denied access to abortion, when she is, can't, can't pull herself up out of a situation because of any number of circumstances, how does it feel inside? And if it outrages you, I think you're a feminist, you know, if, if it causes outrage. I'm with that. Could, yeah. You know, I agree. Um, I'd like to touch briefly on the second really sad part of your book for me. Um, you were expressing really deep regret in the book at being involved in what was known back then as the Go-Go's sex tape. Um, it involved a passed out roadie getting penetrated with a vibrator. You were high at the time and didn't seem to be fully clear on what was going on, but you were on the tape very briefly participating. And of that incident, you wrote, some actions are inexcusable and the repercussions are infinite. I wonder what those repercussions have been and if you've found any ways to make this a teachable moment or to otherwise find healing around it. Uh, it's It will always, always remain the, the biggest regret of my life. And it's, it's humiliating and, and humbling to know that whether you're high and messed up or not, that you are capable of of any being participating in any kind of, uh, predatorial actions, you know, and at the same time, you know, many times, uh, looking back, I, I saw that I had been the victim of that too. And I, and I think there's always a cycle. I think most people that participate, whatever degree it is, have experienced being on the other end of it. Um, forgiving myself. It's just, I'm not, I can't really forgive myself. I, I just can't. I, it's something that will always bother me. It's, I would consider running for office. You know, I would consider politics if it wasn't for that. It, it, it's, it's just a, a, a horrible, horrible thing to carry with you. And it makes me really upset to think about it and to talk about it and, um, to know that it's out there, you know, that, it's just, it's just, all you can do is, uh, they, all you can do is kind of change your behavior yeah. completely and do at every, t at every opportunity, try to do something good in the world and be a, a champion for people and never, ever victimize anyone again. And, you know, I, I think I have daily actions that are the opposite of that, but it's still, it doesn't make it that it didn't yeah. happen. I definitely agree in change and learning. Yeah. And thank you so much for addressing it, both with me and with the book. I think that's really brave and you didn't have to. And I think that you were willing to really goes a long way in, in, in proving that you really ha want to move past it to a better place. I, uh, sure. I, I felt like, I felt like writing the book that if I, that I wouldn't have any credibility. I mean, to me, it had to be a literary memoir. It, it wasn't a spill all, you know, here's the dirt. Look what, look at all the crazy stuff that's been, it was, it had to be, so it had to be truthful. And, you know, the, the judgment of what to leave out and what to, what to, what to leave in and what to, to not write about really came from how affected it was. Because if I couldn't feel I couldn't feel it really strongly. I don't, I don't think the story needed to be told. And that's something that I feel so strongly. And even just talking about it now, it's like, I fight back the tears. So, um, it's like it, it, in memoir, you know, I wasn't writing a novel. I wasn't writing an essay. I wasn't writing a magazine story. I was writing a memoir. And to me, memoir is about stuff that is, uh, is real. And if, I don't know. I would like to know, Kathy Valentine, what are your hopes and your dreams and your goals for the rest of 2020? And what is the first thing you would like to do once lockdown is over? You know, it's funny. I, I, I would think it would be like a, a vacation or something or travel to, you know, go to one of the cities that I miss. You know, I, I love New York and I love LA and I, my family's in England. So 
I would think it was travel, but it was funny. I was, I was cleaning out, you know, organizing a, a closet yesterday and I got out my, uh, like my placemats and my, my napkins and stuff. And I was like, when am I going to have a dinner party? Again? I know. When am I going to yeah. have, you know, and I just started thinking how fun it would be just to invite people over to dinner and, and not have to be sitting, you know, 15 feet apart or whatever. So I think some, I think I'm going to have a lot more appreciation for the, like what's at home, what I can do at home with people. Cause you know, I don't know. Traveling is, and I do miss traveling too, but anyway, so that's that. I, I don't know what it's going to be. It's hard to know because there's so much longing piled up in, in this quarantine, you know, a lot of longing, but there's so many silver linings too. So many, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I've had the best couple of months with, uh, with a 17 year old daughter who's normally just out the door <laughs> to be with her friends. Yeah. Right. Right. And it's been so cool. And we we watched we've been watching documentaries and movies and uh, it's been really great. But um, for the rest of this year, I want to get started on a second book. I really do. Awesome. I, I don't want to be a one book wonder. I want to write. I want to start writing some uh, smaller pieces for publication. Maybe you guys will have me write something. <gasps> yeah, you have that, to write for Bob. For sure. I would. I would really like that. I want to. I want to start. You know, getting other because I. I want to write about other things than me, <laughs> you know, but although I'm a very me type writer, I mean, I, I did some reviews for the talk house and they were, they were really good, but they brought my, some people, they just always bring their, they have to refer kind of inside a lot. But anyway, I'm excited to write more and to do more music and just kind of totally stay healthy. Right. Oh my God. Awesome. Yeah. I would totally. love to. Let's figure it out. Pack, love it. Deal. In shaking on it we're gonna about to to segue into our whatcha watching segment however i have one pop culture question for you before we do mm. did you ever watch your bandmate jane weedland's season of the surreal life and um, would you ever consider doing something like that you know when reality tv first first came out I was I was kind of into it. It was kind of new and different and gave a glimpse into the world. But I never liked those kind of shows, the surreal life shows. I liked more like the adventure ones, like... Um, uh, like Survivor. Survivor and the traveling, Amazing Race. Amazing Race. Yes, yeah, so I like those kind of shows. And, and for Guilty Pleasure, I liked, you know, America's Next mm-hmm. Top Model and, mm-hmm. and um, Top... Uh, what's it called? Project Runway. I liked, so I liked when it first came out, I got tired of it pretty quickly, but so I, I didn't see, um, I don't, I think I saw one or two episodes that were kind of well-known. I think it was pretty extreme. Like she, I know Jane got into it with the brat. Yes. I think I saw that. that. And um, the thing that's really sad, I mean, that was 2005. Um, so it's 15 years ago, but in those 15 years, like two of those people that were on there with her are dead. Oh, one from OD and one from alcoholism. Vern Troyer died of alcoholism season. complications and, and China OD'd <gasps> like they really had people. I forgot of, that China was on that. Oh, my God. Yeah. And she was out of control. Wow. Um, so they definitely, you know, they're sort of a. You know, they call it, you know, you could say that it's a guilty pleasure, voyeurism. but it's also like there's certain voyeurism to putting certain people who like, like really need with that check really bad. Whitney Houston's, uh, yeah, reality <laughs> show. Yeah. Yeah. And not to be like a, not to be like, you know, oh, I, I don't feel like old at all, but I, I will promise people that when you get like into your later fifties, you just start really having a different view about how you spend your time. I have a sense mm-hmm. of urgency about like, do I have enough time to read all the books I want to read? I don't think I do. Do I have enough time to see, catch up on, on these films or to write the stuff I want to write or make the music? And you start being a little bit pickier and TV, that kind of TV was one of the things that just went, I just don't. Yeah. Don't have yeah maybe mind. you don't want to like spend in a house with Christopher Knight yeah. from the Brady Bunch, like maybe <laughs> you're to do it. 
Um, all right. Well, we're going to take the briefest of breaks. And when we come back, I'm going to ask our guest and then Callie. And then hopefully Callie will ask me what, what you watching. Watch yeah. Hey, podcast fans. Did you know that the best place to listen to your favorite shows ad free is Stitcher Premium? They've got Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, My Favorite Murder, Wolverine The Lost Trail, Bitch Sesh, The Fantasy Footballers, Science Rules with Bill Nye, and more, all without commercial interruptions. And we can hook you up with a sweet deal. To get one month free, go to stitcher.com slash premium and use promo code POPTARTS. That's stitcher.com slash premium, promo code POPTARTS. Before we get back to the show... I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be, and you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via wolfievibespublicity.com for details and quotes. And tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. Essentially, I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious. And I knew would make great podcasts. And every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. <laughs> Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted, and led by women. We have shows about politics. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. When the Supreme Court puts stuff on their calendar, they use the word docket. So their Google calendar is a docket. Is a docket. So technically, I have a docket. You have a docket. We all have docket. We all have a docket. Sex? Welcome to my vagina. I'm Jesse Karen. This is Rebecca Frank. What were ancient Greek dildos made of, Jesse? They were made of padded leather and, yep, anointed with olive oil. Yep. <laughs> Scams? I'm Caitlin I'm Smith. <laughs> and, and we, we love scams. scams. She tells them she's a German-Russian heiress, and she seems like she has a lot of money, and people buy it. That's yeah. basically what's happening. So as soon as she got a loan, she would cash it as much as she could out before anybody caught on. Which Amazing. Was so smart. I mean, so like, smart. <laughs> I mean, it's terrible, but like to take that money out immediately. Because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. Hello. And we're back. Hello. <laughs> Kathy Valentine, I would like to know what you watching. And when I say what you watching, it is a broad question. It encompasses movies and books and television and music and music videos and podcasts and anything that you are consuming pop culturally we want to know what it is because it is probably cool kathy valentine what you watching i um i'm catching up a lot as as i just said i don't watch a lot of stuff so I just watched, um, I love 20 Feet from Stardom, the documentary. Yes. I just watched that and I loved it. Uh, God, that was good. And I was like, like Googling every single person on it to find out what happened to them. And Dude, that part about the, the Rolling Stones backup oh, singer yes, who was I pregnant, who they pulled this. out of bed. Uh, Mary Clayton. And when the curl, yes, oh I never knew that. I never knew. I mean, I. It's just like, yeah, crazy. Part. I never heard that track the same way again. Yeah. So I love that. And uh, I'm reading a lot. What am I reading? I just read this great Janis Joplin biography by Holly George Warren. So good. So good. Um, I always blink out. See, I should have I should have just um, written things down because I blink out when people ask me things. No problem. Callie, what you watching? Uh, Hollywood. The Ryan Murphy. How oh, is it? I haven't Netflix, watched it yet. It's so good. Um, they take some some liberties with some of the characters that are real characters. So there's because there's like um, Rock Hudson, like legit Rock Hudson, okay. but they they write him as if he was able to walk on the red carpet with his partner. 
So there's like a little, mm. it's like part uh, based on characters and then some, and they use their real names, but they're not exact. There's, and then there's Annie Mae Wong on there, who I really want to know more about. She was like the first Chinese American Hollywood movie star, super outspoken and, and refused some role when, um, I guess, what was the movie called? Some movie where Paul Mooney was cast as an Asian American lead, Good Earth, and she got really pissed and then started saying she wouldn't play like stereotypical roles. That's the real anime Wong. I want us to do something on her and bust. She sounds amazing. And then Tallulah Bankhead is in it. And Haiti Mc, uh, McDaniel? Yeah. Uh, that's McDaniel. Queen Latifah, dude. Mm-hmm. I didn't know Queen Latifah was playing yes. Hattie McDaniel in that. That's and amazing. And then there's a Vivian Lee character. It's really good. How can Ryan Murphy make so many shows at the same right? time? I mean, this one isn't as exciting as some of the others. But it's also I Love Old Hollywood. So it gives me that. I saw this movie Stung. She's a horror movie about giant wasps. It's a comedy horror. Oh my God, that's so on trend right now with those murder hornets. Yeah. I found that if you go to Hulu uh, Horror and you scroll all the way down to see more, it has horror sub genres and horror comedy is one. And Stung is oh. there. It was amazing if you like cheesy horror. It's like giant wasps at a garden party, like eating whole bodies. Nice. Um, and then this movie that my friend Christian recommended, As Above, So Below, which is about an architect. Um, oh, I was just doing the As Above, So Below. I thought you were dancing at me. Um, it's this architect. It's played by an uh, actress I've never heard of, Perdita Weeks. I've never actually heard of any of the people in this movie. I have never heard of her either. But um, it's like a low-budget horror And it's very slow at the beginning, but it's this architect. She's sort of like a temple of the doom type situation. And she needs to find this philosopher's stone that's underneath the catacombs in Paris. And she gets this like crew together and they go underneath the catacombs into these secret like chambers and she gets weird and it gets weirder and then it gets weirder. There's a lot of really good blood and the end is totally insane. You're impressed with the blood, then it must be yes. good blood because you're a blood connoisseur. You know this. And then also just like a little um, <laughs> Instagrammy thing was Boss Bitch Fight Challenge, which I sent around with Zoe Bell. You know, oh. she was in Bust, right? Didn't we have her in there? The um, Yes, we did. Right, and she's and a direct stunt, stunt woman. scenes and stuff. And she had all these Hollywood ladies that have done stunts, like, across the gamut oh, yes yeah, so that. good it's like zoe bell lucy lawless so barrymore julia lewis rosario dawson cameron diaz out of retirement daryl hannah <laughs> doing like fight doing yeah but they're like they'll interact stuff. with each other so like one will punch the other and the other will like do a stunt backwards into their pool at their house and then the other will like punch Halle Berry. oh cool it was awesome. <laughs> nice. I'll have to check it out. It was awesome. So that's yeah. what I've been watching. What have you been watching, babe? I'm so glad that you asked. But first, I need to interrupt the proceedings for everyone at home who cannot see what I can see. Kathy Valentine has such a cute dog on her lap now. I need to know who is this dog? What's happening? This is Tux, T-U-X. Oh, and he's, he's a rescue oh, mutt. Nice. And he is um, he's like a little he's, skunk. Like panicking, yeah. He's got a little skunk look, spot on the on, top. Tux. Try, try to look good. Oh, he's obsessed with my cake pop. That's what it is. Oh, so he's, so he's cute. uh he was scratching at the door and what we call erring, where he goes err, <laughs> err. So he was he was starting to err a lot, and I wanted what to make him you? stop. So I oh, you were cruelly separated. He's, He's so cute. Me, um, I love him. What are the vibes right. of uh, 101 Dalmatian stripes, kind of? Yeah, but you well, know Dalmatians the coat are spotted. Had? Oh, no, <laughs> don't never. make a coat out of tux. It would, He's so it would be very uh, <laughs> small. <laughs> he also has similar markings to my cat Irv because he he's a tuxedo cat. He's very neurotic because his pack is me 
and my daughter and two cats. So we're we're like a really lousy pack for a dog. He's so cute. And so it's made him a made him a neurotic chronic worker <laughs> and but he's <laughs> very oh, cuddly. So sweet. Well, thank you for indulging me. I had to know more about that cute dog. I haven't been watching anything because we're just getting off of Bust's deadline like right now as we speak. The last pages are going to the printer. So I haven't been watching a goddamn thing, but I have been listening to music. And this is what I've been listening to. There is this amazing psychedelic instrumental surf rock band from Toronto called the Surfragettes. I just discovered them. I just discovered that. They're so them. amazing. I, just, I love them so much. I just tweeted that. What about that version of um, Toxic? Britney Spears Toxic. Oh, I have got to hear those. Everything. They have bouffants. They have go-go boots. They can totally play their instruments like this. nobody's business. And they're amazing. I freaked and out. I, I freaked out when I discovered them. I don't even know how I discovered them. I don't even know how it happened. Maybe it's just like our Vulcan mind melt from afar, but like it's really helpful when I'm writing to have music that doesn't have words and their surfer jets are only instrumental. And so they're perfect. They just have um, the best riffs ever. They can surfify any song and they have a new album coming out on June 5th. Um, they put out their stuff on like hot pink vinyl and it's, so fresh and they play surf music i love this all over the place find them on the youtube they're so good um also it at bust headquarters we used to listen to the best radio station ever which is the new jersey yes. station wfmu you listen to it every friday at bust because our former co-worker sheila b has a girl group show on there called sophisticated boom boom on fridays but while I was trying to write the cover story for the next bust, I tuned into FMU and I got sucked into this block of three great Wednesday shows. Uh, the first one is called Weekly World Blues. The second is called Honky Tonk Ooh. Radio Girl. And the third is that Evan Funk Davies show. All three of them were so good. I forgot how much I missed radio shows hosted by real DJs who actually love the music and are spinning from their own collections. It's really, you know, such a lost art and they just keep the dream alive over at WFMU. And it's, you know, streaming all the time on the internet for anyone, anywhere to listen to. It's such a gift that keeps on giving. Everyone should listen to FMU all the time. And uh, frankly, I felt ashamed that I hadn't been doing it more because it's like one of those things like the public library. Lori Hensel always like, oh has my it God. on in her car all the time. Anytime I'm with Hensel, she has it It's on. just the best. And then the third uh, gem that I've been listening to is there's this really cool Brooklyn label called Big Crown Recordings and they put out like musicians that sound like they're recording in the early 60s but Into they're it. really recording now. And there was this band called The Lakesiders. It's, they spell V like Megan V. Stallion with two E's. They're called The Lakesiders. And they're a duo out of East L.A., a dude and a guy with, like, perfect pompadour hair. We love a pomp. And in 2018, they spent two days in New York's Diamond Mind Studio with this backing band, The Shacks. And the session, during that session, they created possibly the, the perfect song. It's called Parachute. Oh God, I'm gonna have to look it up. <laughs> and it has become a modern day '60s style soul classic. Um, they've made a beautiful atmospheric video to go along with oh. it, and then they broke up. So it's sort of like this little perfect time capsule of this amazing band that was just here for the briefest of moments and then was gone—an ephemeral wonder. Please look up parachute by the lakesiders the lakesiders i just parachute. wrote that down on a post. Just, if you love 60s soul music like the video may make you cry because that's how perfect it is and that's what i've been watching which is actually what i've been listening to but the last thing that i want to mention is that the majestic pop tarts patreon page has made you in the world we really really need everyone's help 
to keep Bust alive. And hopefully you'll be excited by the goodies that we've hooked up for Pop-Tarts listeners at patreon.com slash Pop-Tarts podcast. Callie and I, with the help of Team Bust, have been typing up show notes exclusively for Patreon donors that include links to what everyone has been watching for all 82 episodes. So if you're like, oh, I love what that person was watching. What was that person watching? If you're a Patreon patron, it's all there. It's just a click away. Everything that everyone has been watching for 82 episodes. There's also all kinds of other goodies like ad-free episodes. There's exclusive content on there, like our amazing episode with Big Frida. There's packs of swag. There's so much good stuff over at patreon.com slash Podcast. Uh, consider helping us out however you can. We appreciate you. And, uh, of course, I appreciate our guest, Thank Kathy you. Valentine. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. I loved it. You're a doll. Oh, I loved it, too. Thank you to our luscious producer and sound engineer, Logan Del Fuego. Muy caliente, Logan. And our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems and on Instagram at Rems Emily because somebody stole Emily Rems. You cannot find Callie on social media. She does not want to be found, but I think you can find Kathy Valentine. Where can people find you, Kathy? You can find me, uh, Kathy underscore Valentine on Twitter, uh, Kathy dot Valentine on Instagram, uh, Facebook, and my big, um, my big uh, pride and pain in the butt is that I always post different content to every oh, single social media. A true so player. don't miss out. Come to all of them. Mm-hmm. You're putting your back into it. I appreciate that. And you can email Callie and I. You can email me at emilyrems at bust.com. CallieWBust.com. And you can learn more about this show at bust.com slash Pop-Tarts. And finally, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. We super duper appreciate it. And until next time, you guys are so awesome. I'm really liking this. Like giant wasps at a garden party. Covered in sugar. It's so good.